0: All of a sudden, I'm just sitting here with more money than I plan on having. COVID hits and I basically spent the first 18 months of my career just like working for my apartment. I was kind of tired of it. So I decided to do the opposite of that. What's the most fun thing I could do that like, is just a better way to spend the next year than staring at my computer screen. I found a flight to Barcelona for 300 bucks and just went.
1: Welcome to episode 10 of the Idea Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. So throughout 2023, something that I've been thinking more and more about is what the best use of my time is in this stage of life. And what I mean by that specifically is up to this point, I have had a handful of different professional experiences working at an investment bank, working for a startup, working for a private equity-backed firm undergoing a turnaround. And so I've had a diverse set of experiences and have made great relationships in the process and have also been able to financially set myself up well for the next decade. But the question I'm often asking myself now is, at 27 years old, what risks am I not taking that I should be? That when I'm in my 30s, in my 40s, in my 50s, I would look back and, and regret not taking? And one thought experiment that sometimes I contemplate is what if I just took a year off to accelerate a lot of the personal learning that I've already been doing, podcasting and meeting interesting people in the process, reading more thought-provoking books, and ultimately just attempting to carve out a career path that more aligns with my personal interests. Well, my guest today, Jack Raines, did something very much like this a couple years back. After amassing enough of a financial cushion to quit his job for a year from trading stocks, Jack ended up traveling the world. In this episode, Jack breaks down the thought process and the backstory, and ultimately explains how he's been able to carve out an incredibly interesting career at just 26 years old. Today, Jack is the editor-in-chief of ExecSum, a daily financial newsletter with over 260,000 readers. He is also the author of Young Money, his own newsletter, where he blogs on financial topics and shares that with over 40,000 readers. And he's doing both of these things while also being a student at Columbia Business School. He is currently a second year MBA student. If you are on X and are interested in finance and the markets, you have probably already come across some of Jack's content and if you haven't, I'd highly recommend you give him a follow. His handle is at Jack underscore Raines, and that's R-A-I-N-E-S. With that context, please enjoy my conversation with Jack Raines. So Jack, I'm excited to have this conversation, one, because I've read a handful of your pieces on Young Money in the past and also really enjoyed some conversations that you've previously had with some other podcast hosts. But maybe like as a starting point, if I look at your background, it's pretty interesting because it seems like you had like a pretty traditional background in terms of like studying finance and and Spanish and then getting like a traditional job. And then like there's some sort of break that happens in like that career trajectory where you decide to just like leave your job, or I don't know if you quit or what the dynamic was, but then kind of take a year long backpacking trip, which seems like it kind of spawned you into like this whole different realm or universe. So can you just maybe talk about like that, that process of like what, what happened there?
0: Yeah. So yeah, I would say I had about the most traditional path possible, studied finance and Spanish. Like you said, graduated, got a job working in corporate finance in Atlanta. And then the plan was do that for like three years and go to business school. For context, I'd gotten into business school at Columbia out of undergrad in the spring of 2019. Typically for business school, you work a few years and then you reapply, like you apply to business school and you're like 25, 26, go back to school, graduate with a higher paying job, whatever. Columbia had a unique like deferred enrollment option where you can apply when you're 22, senior year of college. And then if you're in, you still have to work like two to five years. But you're already accepted, so it was pretty nice having that on the back burner. So like my like trajectory at that point was work, get a promotion or two, go to school, and then the like. I think I put on my application. I wanted to go into banking or consulting because I knew they recruited heavily out of Columbia and would probably be the like smartest things to put on there to get in. But those I would have probably done one of those two industries, the high paying, good companies, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I honestly just got lucky, kind of gambling on the stock market during COVID and made. A lot more money than i should have like when you're budgeting off like a 60k salary i was i was already planning on like i had this idea going into it like oh cool i can travel the year before business school and or travel the summer before business school for like three months then go to school get an internship the following summer and then work after but that was based off a budget of like saving like a thousand bucks a month or whatever then you make a couple hundred grand trading stocks. We can go a little more into that later if you want to. Um, But all of a sudden I'm just sitting here with more money than I plan on having. And I was also so sick of the whole, I started working in February, 2020, right? So COVID hits and I basically spent the first 18 months of my career, just like working for my apartment. I was kind of tired of it. So I decided to do the opposite of that. I was like, well, I've got enough money that I don't like, I've got more money than I would make if I kept my entire salary for the next year. And so I don't need the money and I'm going to business school in a year. So it's not like this really messes up my career trajectory. What's the most fun thing I could do that like, is just a better way to spend the next year than staring at my computer screen, like doing spreadsheet work. I found a flight to Barcelona for 300 bucks and just went
1: like a month and a half later. And yeah. Insane, insane. So let me let me go back before we kind of pull on that thread a little deeper. Like even at at university. So if you're doing the, these schools, they have like the two plus two programs or whatever, right? And if you were applying and got into Columbia's, like you must have been a pretty like academically inclined and accomplished individual in undergrad. How how would you describe yourself as a student in university? Yeah,
0: I took I took school really seriously. Mercer University is a great school, but it's not a like it's not like going to duke or vanderbilt or georgia tech or like higher level like one of the ivies or stanford or chicago where everybody knows the name and just from where you go to school you can you'll be competitive in any job process like mercer was a good school i got like i i loved mercer i got a great education there mckinsey and company doesn't recruit from mercer right so i knew off the rip i would need to be at the like like top percentile of uh my class to get more competitive jobs and then I realized too, like once I started thinking, oh, I might want to do business school at some point. And then I found those deferred enrollment things. I was like, I, I'd like, I'm close to 4.0 GPA. I had, a, I had a 3.99 actually. I made one B plus and I'm still pretty annoyed about that. But I I scored well on the GMAT. And then that, that was the biggest thing. Like playing football helped because I had an application that stood out a little bit. But yeah, I did well on the GMAT, which was like the standardized test for business school and had a good GPA. But I, I knew I needed to be a like, one of the top applicants out of my school to have a shot at better grad schools, better jobs. So, yeah, I put I put academics on a pedestal, a lot more in
1: undergrad than I do now probably. And so, I mean, you said that the part of the thinking in the application was like, hey, these people at Columbia want to see people who are going to go into banking or consulting or do some sort of top top tier job, uh, but you don't go that route immediately out of graduating, right? So, right. what was the what was the thought process there in terms of first job opportunities? the like the type of the type of companies that recruit out of Columbia just don't recruit out of Mercer. Right. Like
0: the, like the higher end jobs. I take that back. I have one friend from Mercer who went into investment banking out of undergrad, but that was the exception, not the rule. Like he was a Rhodes scholar finalist, like was on the tennis team at Mercer. Like he was, he was the like pinnacle of achievement that you could have for Mercer university. He got a job in banking he was trying to get a job in banking from his like freshman year of college, right? Like that was his thing. If you were just like applying for jobs without being that meticulous about it, there were good jobs, but it's like financial analyst at Delta, UPS, Home Depot, Norfolk Southern, like a lot of the like Southeastern based companies, especially Atlanta. So I got, I applied to a bunch of jobs in Atlanta and then in Washington, D.C. because I'd interned there for a congressman the summer before that. And, like, I got a decent paying job for UPS in Atlanta. Like, there was no specific thing that was, oh, I have to get this one job. It was like, I'm applying to 50 things, and 20 of them I'd be happy with, and this was one of them. So I figured, yeah, I'll go do that. I can, But because I knew I was going to business school, I didn't care that much about what I did, because I knew I would use business school to pivot into something else.
1: Yep. And so during your time in undergrad, so right now you do online writing, you're known for some of the satirical work that you, you do, you, you put, push newsletters on like finance and money among other topics. Were you doing anything creative at your time in undergrad? Were you on, on Twitter at all? Like what was the, what was the dynamic when you were, when you were. So I
0: was, I was on Twitter. I wasn't really posting that frequently. This is a pretty niche thing, but like college football coaches love Twitter. They like recruit athletes on Twitter and kids post their highlights on Twitter, get a following. So like most of my Twitter following then, and I still probably have a lot of them now, were like college football coaches who were recruiting. So it's kind of funny that it's gone from that to like finance, media writing, all that stuff. Now I wasn't actively like posting, I I wasn't an active Twitter poster largely because I wanted my social media to like be a, a football thing. We did have a business newsletter within the business school at Mercer called bear market. And I wrote a few pieces for that. I can't even remember what I wrote about, but yeah, I mean, I've always liked writing. Like when we had group projects, I would, if we all assigned roles, I would usually be the one who would like take all the data that everybody researched and pull it together or people would have a lot of different sections. I would be the one that would like turn it into a narrative. Like that's been something I've always enjoyed But I wasn't blogging frequently. I didn't have a regular newsletter content cadence, anything like that.
1: And at Mercer, so you were a football student for or I guess athlete for all four years when you were when you're there?
0: Yeah, I actually did four and a half years. I graduated in May 2019, but with college athletes you get you have five years to play four seasons In my freshman year, I was redshirted, which means like if you get redshirted it means you only practice that year but you don't play. And it's hmm. pretty common, especially in football for a lot of the freshmen to get redshirted so they can develop, put on more muscle for a year. And you'd rather have a kid playing at 22 or 23 than 18 or 19, all things mm-hmm. being equal. So I did that. And then, like that semester, I took four classes, but I already graduated.
1: So I took them pass fail, no pressure. So it was, that was a fun semester. But yeah, four and a half years. But overall, like in terms of balancing, so you you were majoring in finance and Spanish and yep. you were a student athlete. I mean, you, you had a stellar GPA. Was that like it must have been pretty wild in terms of responsibilities and stuff like that? I was I was fraternity president, too, which is the toughest job <laughs> out of all of them. I don't know. I I feel like you have a lot of
0: free time in college, even if like you're a student athlete and doing all this stuff. I don't think a lot of college students realize it at the time because it feels like you're so swamped, but that's because all you've ever done is school. Some people work too. And then like people will do summer internships, but a lot of college kids like just do school. So, okay. If I'm practicing or doing football stuff, 20 hours a week, then fraternity stuff, five to 10 hours a week that I would be doing anyway. Cause that's kind of just hanging out with your friends, studying some outside of class, but not like a crazy amount. Like, I don't know, all of it cumulatively probably 50 hours a week but a lot of that is stuff that I would like some of the football stuff like I still go to the gym now right like that workouts and stuff replaced exercise time now I think most people especially before they start like actually working working can put a lot more stuff on their calendar and manage it because we're pretty good like as humans at navigating like if you have a deadline you'll get a dud if you have responsibilities like most people are good at doing the stuff they have
1: to do. It's just, they overstate how long it's going to take them to do stuff. Like we're very good under deadlines. So getting back onto the narrative of how you eventually take this kind of like nine month long trip across the world, like you, you graduate from Mercer in 2019 and then you start your, your first kind of full-time gig. What was, what was the the work that you were doing? And then how do you get into the whole it was like spec trading that you were you were doing yeah. if i remember correctly so i
0: like i was a financial analyst at ups and i feel like most financial analyst jobs at most companies are pretty similar at the lower levels it's when you get higher up that you are kind of driving the ship that that's where it really gets more niche but it was a lot of like analyzing profitability trends and trying to forecast okay seasonally fuel costs do this or we know that we're going to have to renegotiate union contracts in this quarter of this year. So, just trying to forecast what our expense side is going to look like to see what our profitability will be. Honestly, it probably would have been fairly interesting work if I'd been in the office, but I spent four days in the office and then we went remote. And it's like when you don't really get to develop that like camaraderie with your team, you don't know anybody. UPS used to do a thing where new hires would get to ride around in a truck with one of the drivers for a day or go to some of the packing facilities like they really want to integrate everybody in the company. And I think I would have enjoyed that a lot. I didn't get any of that. Like a month before COVID, they had just started that January of like letting people do one to two days remote if they were the manager level and above. So UPS had already started kind of integrating some remote stuff. But like the onboarding materials weren't remote, like all of the I wasn't fully into the system where I had like a VPN and like a login thing for my laptop when all this hit. So I was kind of just treading water for two weeks, just waiting to be able to work, basically. And it became a lot of like doing tasks, this and that, like, I would sit in on stuff with my supervisors and managers, but you're not really sitting in on the stuff with them. You're on a Zoom call watching their screen. So I just I missed a lot of the like social bonding aspect of the office, which made it kind of a drag.
1: Hmm. Okay. And so the the actual dabbling into to SPACs and yeah. like trading trading stocks and stuff like that and actually doing quite well. When when did that start? Was that that was after you were starting at U, UPS and were there for a little bit of time. The first start was I remember this is this is such a like this is so screwed up. We
0: didn't end up doing it, but my best friend in college was the treasurer of the fraternity when I was the president, and we didn't have that much money. And we joked about, I forgot what the trade was. Like, I think it was one of the weed stocks, like canopy growth, like, oh, like Canada's talking about legalizing weed. Like, what if we put fraternity money in that? And then the stock like 4X that year. And I was sitting there thinking, damn, we probably should have done that. That would have been illegal. And I'm glad we didn't. But, you know, when you're 20 or 21, it seems like a pretty good idea. Yeah. So then I graduate from school and I'm home applying for jobs that like December and January. And at this point, Tesla was starting to go nuclear. This is pre COVID, but Tesla and then Virgin Galactic, the spaceship company, both just like started going nuts in December. And I found Wall Street Bets, a Reddit forum where people talk about making degenerate trades, and you're seeing people like turning 10K into 230K to 300K, whatever. So I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is insane. So I started like a couple of thousand dollars in a Robinhood account, like trading stuff here and there. And I was actually tracking it all in like an Excel doc on my computer. And like I'd made, I mean, I thought I was a genius, probably not, but I'd made like a couple thousand bucks and thought it was interesting. So then COVID hits and like, I don't really know what's going on, but the market is insane. And I was like, once we were like talking about going remote for work, I was sitting there thinking, damn, like, the market's going to take like everybody's doing this. Or it was it was the week it was the week before I started work. I put on a pretty big short position. I bought a bunch of puts on the S and P 500. Literally just thinking the market was going to like get cut in half, and I turned ten grand by like that first week of work. I turned ten grand into like thirty grand. Jeez. So then we go remote, and I just made twenty grand in a week while my paycheck is like a thousand dollars. And in my head, <laughs> I'm like extrapolating that. And I'm like, oh, I'm the next Michael Burry. I can just keep doing this forever because I was 22 and I was an idiot. So. I decided to like put all my money shorting the S and P 500 again on the day that the market bottomed on March 23rd. And then I lost, I went from 30 grand back to 10 grand in like two weeks. And that was my first lesson. And this is probably gambling, not investing. So I initially learned from my lesson and I was like, okay, I'm just going to put money in like a Roth IRA and chill. So I put like, $6,000 or whatever the max contribution was my Roth. And I was like going to buy an index fund and never think about it. And then one of my friends texted me saying, Oh, do you know what a SPAC is? And I was like, I've heard of the term. I think Virgin Galactic went public through a SPAC. And he was like, yeah, well, DraftKings is going public through a SPAC. If you buy this thing called Desert Eagle Acquisition Company, then you'll own DraftKings stock. I didn't really understand the mechanisms of it, but I tracked it and the stock doubled. And I was like, interesting. And every SPAC comes with these things called warrants, which are essentially call options that give you the right to buy the stock at a discounted price within the next within five years of it going public. The price that you could buy the stock at with a warrant, like if you execute it, it, was $11.50. The SPACs price their deals at $10 a share. So basically, if you buy a bunch of warrants when the stock is $10 and the market really likes it and it goes to $20, the stock doubles, but the warrant, which might be worth, a or $2 when it's like out of its like exercise range would go up like 800%. So I saw that with DraftKings and I was like, holy shit, that was nuts. I wonder if this is going to keep happening. Next time I hear about a SPAC deal that seems interesting, I'm going to buy some and see. And Nikolai Motors, fraudulent company that should go to zero at some point, went public in a SPAC deal. And I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to buy like $6,000 worth of Nikolai warrants. And I did. And then the stock doubled or tripled, and I made like 30 grand. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm back. Like, I should just cash out. And then there were more stacks, and I realized I could just keep parlaying that. And I'm sitting there with like six months later, I have like 200 grand. And yeah, and this is like while I'm working a job remote. So, like, everybody else (laughs) is locked at home miserable. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm
1: like, I just turned 23 and I've got $200,000 from hitting buttons on my phone. This is incredible. Throughout that entire ride, did it ever get to your head of like, hey, I should I should quit my job and become like a full-time trader kind of oh, thing? Oh, for because sure. It's hard yeah. to it's hard to have that degree of success and not think that you are an incredible trader and that it was all due to luck. How how much of it do you attribute to luck versus some skill? I would say the spec trade itself actually there was
0: luck in the fact that like none of that stuff should have gone up as much as it did. I'm not going to fully discount the whole thing is like lucky gambling because it was probably 30 or 40 different trades that hit. Right. And the, the one mechanism that I do give myself credit for was the warrants were, you could say they're gambling because they could theoretically go to zero. They had no intrinsic value unless the stock went above 1150, but because they didn't expire for five years, like they were going to be, they were going to be worth something until they were close to expiration because there was so much time for that stock to be worth something. But the shares, which actually converted, like if you bought one share of Desert Eagle, you would own a share of DraftKings when that deal closed. They like like SPACs are essentially bank accounts that are publicly traded. If you buy shares in that, like a $10 share, there are $10 in that bank account associated with your shares. So if you own shares in the SPAC, you can redeem them for $10 cash. If the stock, stock price could go to 20 or 30 before the deal closes, people really like it and think it's undervalued but you could still get $10 back. So like once I'd gotten up to $150,000, I started only buying SPACs that were under $12 where I knew I could get $10 back at any point. So like I was never risking more than 20% on a trade, 10% if I was good at it. I would sell every time they got above 15. So like it wasn't quite arbitrage, but I knew exactly how much I was risking on every trade. And I got out once it got beyond a threshold of like the opportunity cost is getting higher and higher. So I think that was like, I got very good at identifying which ones were just getting frothy and could go up the most. And I was very disciplined about when I would or wouldn't buy, when I would or wouldn't sell. The luck was the fact that that entire bubble happened, that I identified it, and that people were just bidding these stocks up so high. Like I could have had the exact same brand and never had that opportunity. So the opportunity was the lucky part. I don't think the trades were necessarily lucky. What screwed me was, obviously, when people are making this much money on something, everybody wants to get in on it. And I got saturated and then it got diluted. And then there just wasn't enough money to keep puffing the bubble up and it stopped working. And I tried to trade some like stocks that weren't SPACs because I figured I, the stupid thing was assuming that because I was good at trading one specific thing. It's like being an NFL level, I don't know, defensive end and thinking that, okay, I'm going to be like an NBA level basketball player you're probably still a decent basketball player, but you're going to get obliterated by like Giannis or LeBron James. And I thought because I'd traded one thing well, that I could just trade stocks. Well, yeah, I thought I could just do it full time. I had at my peak I had $400,000 starting from $6,000. And I was like, I'm 150% away from a million dollars. And then once you get to a million, like you can do some <laughs> low risk trades. You make 1%, you're making 10 grand, right? And the whole thing was in my retirement account. So I wasn't paying taxes on it. So I kind of, I didn't have to worry about that. At hindsight, as soon as I seriously thought about the fact that I could do it full time, I probably should have just stopped and left like 400 grand in my retirement account because then I blew like over half of it, but that's okay.
1: I know that you're you're a fan of Morgan Housel's work and I am as well. If I were to try and like sample Morgan Housel's audience base and like do a poll on their investing strategy, my my gut would be that maybe a small subset of his audience base are like astute professional investors that like that's their entire lives is to like research stocks, do fundamental analysis or or trade, but then like the vast majority are probably like the buy and hold ETF type sure. of, of strategies. Given your background and that that experience, how do you how do you invest now? Do you also still dabble in single stocks or or fund things? All my money is in um, like index
0: funds, except I kept one share of I don't even know if it's still traded now. I'm I'm actually gonna check. I haven't checked my portfolio in months. Let's see. I kept one share of Catapult Holdings just to like remind. Oh, it looks like they had a reverse stock split because it got like below a dollar a share. Yeah, I kept one share of Catapult Holdings was the one that I blew all my money on. It used to be a SPAC, and then they had a horrible earnings call and the stock tanked 50% in one day, and I had like all my money in it. I kept one share of that just to remind myself, you're an idiot, essentially. Yeah, but no, most of my money's in index funds. I would say most people or most guys around my age, at least that read Morgan Housel stuff, probably also tried to trade stocks during the pandemic. Like most of my friends were doing it some. And there were several people who made, like, at least their salary and or lost at least their salary, like, in that window. But, yeah, Morgan was, like, the, he's he's an index guy. He's very pro-index. And I tend to agree with that at this point in my life.
1: Yeah. So then when you stopped, like, actively trading SPACs or whatever, you, you came away with how much money? And then, like, when when was the decision to, to actually do that whole kind of nine-month trip? Yeah, I... I came away with like, it was a little bit under
0: $200,000 after I got like blown out by a bad trade. I think it was like 180 or something like that. And at first I was pissed because I had blown $220,000. Then I thought about it and figured, well, that sucked. But if I try to trade it all back, I could lose any more of it. So the most mature thing I did was this is probably the difference between me being 24 and being 23 is as a mature 24 year old, I decided that I would just stop trading and I cash out. 20 or 30,000 of it to at this point, I'd already been thinking about I wanted to travel before business school. And I went from I want to travel for three months to six months to I could, if I do it cheaply, fund traveling for a year, basically, if I do it right, I read this book called Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, which was essentially a guide to like long term travel, phenomenal book, Tim Ferriss recommended it before he went on like a three month travel experience and after reading that all of this happened around the time that i lost the money which was august of 2021 i think i was already thinking about traveling before that but at that point when that trade happened i just bought the plane ticket and i was like i'm out I told my boss i was putting my two weeks and yeah went to barcelona i think august 24th of that year something like that
1: with some of those like two plus two programs, sometimes they have like certain parameters or restrictions on like what you can and can't do. Were Were there any like issues with Columbia being like, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a year off and just travel"? Yeah, so they were not a fan of that. <laughs> One of the issues is I don't think the travel
0: itself was the problem. You were supposed to work at least two years before starting school. I'd worked eighteen months because. If I graduated on, like if I'd started working when I technically graduated in like June of 2019, I don't think I would have had an issue because I quit in August of 2021. Like I would have gotten 26 months of experience. Since I did the extra semester of school, I didn't actually start working until February of 2020. I quit my job in August of 2021. They were pretty explicit on the the website. You had to wait two to five years to defer your enrollment. Like you had to defer your enrollment for two to five years. You had to work at least two years. My work experience rounded up to two years. I didn't work for two years. And in hindsight, I probably should have just lied. Like I should have just said I was still working there. I was scared they were going to check it. They might They might have afterwards. I have no idea. But that fall, I had to send my intention to matriculate for the following fall. So like by November, I had to tell them that I'm planning on coming next August because they based their class size around how many, like, early enrollees they're going to get. Like I would have taken somebody else's hypothetical seat. And yeah, so I'd like you have to give an employment update. And I told them I quit my job and I've been working at UPS before that, had a good experience. I was trading stocks during that, made some money, and I was traveling for like, a, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be traveling on and off. I'd also started doing some newsletter stuff with liquidity and exec sum, like a big mm-hmm. daily financial newsletter. But, like, we were still discussing, like, how I can help him, this and that. Like, I wasn't making money from any of it. It was still very much, like, chatting, essentially. And I mentioned that, but it wasn't, like, a full-out, I quit my job and I'm doing this as a job now. And Columbia emailed me back a week later, and they were like, hey, we'd like to talk to you about, like, your pre-MBA plans. And, I get on the phone with them, I was in Sevilla, Spain, on the way to a dinner with a family I lived with, and I studied abroad there, like, four years earlier. And the admissions department straight up said, Yeah, like we think you need more work experience before you're starting. And we want you to push your like matriculation date back a year. And they were like, Essentially get a job again or like do work again for a year before starting school. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I was like, Well, that kind of screws up my life plans. I'm gonna to go to school that year. Like I plan on traveling for one year and then school for two years and then graduate at 27 with my job lined up, and my whole career ahead of me. I don't want to push it back frankly at that point i couldn't have funded two years of travel or whatever so in my head i'm like if they don't let me in now i'm probably just not gonna go to business school so i paused for a second and then told the woman from admissions i was like i was like is this a like set in stone decision or can i like appeal this or at least like ask you to reconsider and she was like as of right now we wouldn't let you in we're open to like further discussions. And I was like, okay, give me like two days to send you a like more thoroughly written email that actually fully articulates my position. Because frankly, the employment update I sent was like one paragraph, right? Like it didn't give a lot of context. They probably thought that I was just a 24 year old who hit the jackpot on the stock market and was just backpacking Europe and drinking and partying a lot. That's exactly what happened. But there (laughs) was like some, some methods of the madness So I sent a 3000 word email fully dictating my thoughts on the whole thing. And then also they said the issue was like not getting enough relevant work experience. And I've included a point that probably half of the entering class was getting zero relevant work experience during COVID, just pretending to work. The only difference was I told the truth about it. And anyway, they emailed me back and they were like, okay, yeah, we're going to let you in. So that was cool. I've enjoyed business school a lot. So I'm glad that I did end up going and glad that
1: I was allowed to. Incredible. I mean, one of the things that I've been engaging in is these things called like learning sprints, where I'll take mm-hmm. like a domain where I feel like I'm inadequate in and compile like 10 to 15 of the best books recommended by other people. And one of the ones that I'm doing right now is on like marketing and advertising. And something that's been more and more obvious through the past like five plus years of having work experience is how powerful being able to write well and then ultimately like sell in person is. Yep. And it sounds like that's kind of what you were able to do in terms of interacting with the admissions office was make like a very strong case. Whereas maybe had you not been as persuasive, that that very well might not have been the, the same situation.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. I My grandma still thinks it's the best thing I've ever written. And I've published <laughs> 250 blog posts since then. But I agree with her. That That's the one piece of riding that's had the biggest impact on my own life. Like, the Hmm. entire trajectory of my life is – because here's the thing. By last fall, I hadn't quite hit an escape velocity on my riding stuff, but I was close. Like, I was – even after getting in, I was contemplating not going because I didn't even know if business school would help. Hmm. It has been very useful and valuable to me, so I'm glad I did. If I was contemplating going this fall, probably wouldn't have because I'd gotten to the point that, like – I was making a decent living from my stuff. I'd met people who liked it. Like I had a lot of people interested in working with me, reading my stuff, this and that. I wouldn't have seen any value in it. It still would have been valuable. I just wouldn't have seen it before I got there, and I probably wouldn't have gone. And like,
1: love business school now. Like some of my best friends are there. Best experiences. Like it's been awesome. So. And so, when did you actually start writing like financial stuff online? And was that the entire like? thesis of like, Hey, I'm, I'm a decent writer. I think that I could build an audience around the type of content that, that I'm producing. Like, I guess, what were the initial thinkings when you were first writing online?
0: When I decided I was going to travel a lot, I, even though I had some money saved up, I wanted to make some money while I was doing it. And probably three or four months before I made that decision, I Googled how to make money writing about stocks because I was just trading stocks all day. And I was like, I, I like writing. Could I do this? And I saw that seeking alpha was paying, they had like a a contributor payout thing where they would pay you a flat fee of $40 per piece about a specific company. And then based off of page views and some other stuff, there was like a variable upside to it. So I figured, okay, let's, I could probably make $100 a piece. I could probably write this in two hours. It's $50 an hour. I don't like, I don't know if I have some downtime during work that's drinking money on the weekend. I could get dinner with that. Who who knows? And I got pretty good at like churning out some stock articles. Every single stock I wrote about is down like 80% since then, (laughs) because most of them were SPACs or former SPACs. But because I was reading about them so much, it was like, I didn't really have to research. I'm like, I knew all their financials going into it. So anytime they would have like randomly, if there was a stock that a critical mass of people were following, that nobody had written about in a while, they would pay more money for those because a lot it would go to a lot of people's inboxes who'd signed up for it and they probably monetize through ads or something. I don't know. But I would kind of target like if there's a stack that they're paying double for, I'll write about it, which is a weird incentive structure because it incentivizes people who know. Like I didn't know anything about Barkbox, a direct to consumer pet toy food company, but I could write something that sounded like I knew a lot about it and I would make $140 for writing it. So I'd written those and I was writing some finance satire for a site called Hard Money. And then I applied to Morning Brew uh, Collaborative Fund. Morgan Housel's Fund was looking for like someone to work kind of under him, kind of under their CEO and like writing research role. They didn't end up actually hiring for that. But I applied to like 10 different things, got zero of them and figured, well, I'd probably, for Morning Brew specifically, I just didn't have enough writing experience. And I figured I'll just write my own finance blog for like a few months prove that I can write well, and then reapply. And that was the whole point. Then I found out that I actually like writing my blog a lot. And that was when I saw that Liquidity, this big finance meme page on Instagram and Twitter, had like a massive newsletter with 100,000 readers. And I saw their ads on it. And I was like, I wonder if I could just work for him. Because I was at a point where I didn't have a journalism background and probably wasn't going to get hired as a staff writer for like a true media company. But if this dude was making money selling ads on a newsletter and he was an anonymous finance meme page, he definitely didn't have a full HR process. And I thought his content was funny. So I was like, maybe I'll just DM him, say I have a finance blog, see if you need help with the newsletter. And he started paying me like 500 bucks a week to help edit his newsletter. And since I was just hostile hopping in Europe, I was like, this is just the coolest gig ever. But yeah, the whole thing started with I just wanted to write long enough to prove that I could. To apply to work for Morning Brew or somebody, when I saw that Liquidity made a legitimate business out of his newsletter, I was like, "I could just do this mine." So why would I go write for somebody else when I could just get my blog bigger and bigger and bigger and just own that asset?
1: Which is how I look at it now. You, I think maybe recently or I don't know if it was a couple months back, spoke about like or wrote about Infinite Games, right? Playing Finite and Infinite Games, and I feel like. Familiarizing yourself with the internet and the opportunities that the internet unlocks just to connect with people and to build your own business and even the types of communities that can emerge that just aren't possible in the physical world, like you had a firsthand seat at kind of seeing that that through, right? It's yep. just like the unlocking power of the internet. Was it pretty obvious to you like early on the the potential and the reach that your writing could, could do, or are you even still like constantly surprised by like what the internet unlocks? Both. I knew, I knew pretty early. I didn't know what it was going to turn into. Like I hadn't thought
0: about what the end game was with it. Around the time I was going to Columbia, I was still considering, okay, do I need to recruit for certain jobs or this or that? it wasn't until halfway through my first semester where I figured I should double down on this at least through fall of my second year. And then if I don't feel comfortable with my career prospects or like earning potential, I can always pivot after that. But I just, I saw the people who had big followings had either monetized wealth through selling ads or just leveraged it for good opportunities. Like Josh Brown runs, uh, he's the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Mm -hmm. And he got his start, he was 31 and just started blogging about finances. That was during the great financial crisis all this stuff, ended up meeting people through that, got a TV contract with, I think CNBC through that, built his whole career off a blog and had no idea where it was gonna go from there. And I figured, okay, like people have done this, like people have made this into a thing. I just didn't know what that was gonna look like. But then occasionally people would read something I wrote and find it profound. Like Nick Majuli, who had at that point two years ago, like 100,000 Twitter followers, big newsletter, was like about to publish a book he read one of my blog posts about like day trading and losing all this money and just thought it was prolific. And that was someone who had a huge audience. He shared it with his audience. Then I got, I don't know, like 200 new subscribers that day when I only had 400 subscribers total. So that increased my readership by Mm. by 50%. I was like, wow, people really like stuff. I write. I just need to keep getting more and more followers to get more and more people to read my stuff because people enjoy it. So I'd seen how people had leverage it as massive in games. And then I saw how individuals were like actually affected by stuff I wrote. So I didn't really know what it was going to turn into, but I've kind of seen both sides of that the whole time, but I'm still blown away by the opportunities of stuff, right? Like I'm, I don't know, I'm only 26. Like I'm not that far into my career and stuff. And I've met just so many fascinating people solely because they liked what I wrote. Or somebody they knew liked what I wrote, which put me on their radar. Like it's it's insane
1: how much this like how much you can leverage this stuff in the long run. And in terms of even positioning yourself to be able to take certain risks, so the money that you had made from trading stocks and that you had saved up, and then also the fact that you had kind of this deferred you know business school opportunity kind of in the bag, those kind of mitigated the risks of you taking like a nine month long trip. Do you, do you think if those two things weren't in place that you would still would be willing to, to give something like that a try? I wouldn't have taken as long of a trip. My plan was like, I was actively budgeting
0: for a three to four month trip going into it. Mm. I made more money than expected. I That turned into a nine or 10 month trip. It would have affected how long it was. Even if I wasn't going to business school, I think I would have worked one extra year. And then when I was looking for another job, would have taken a trip in the middle. No, the the finances and the career stuff definitely alter your ability to do certain things. But at the end of the day, if you're in your 20s, don't have kids, don't have a wife, like don't own a house, you don't have that many obligations. When your rent is up, if you want to quit your job, like you can go back on your parents' health insurance for a year if you need to. Like there's, until you turn 26, if you don't have any legitimate responsibilities, you could live a zero cost life. Like you could go just work at a hostel where they give you like, board and food and have a very cool experience for six months and it doesn't cost you a thing and I was going to do something like that regardless and that was a I just kind of knew from the time I was 23 that I I'd always liked traveling I liked studying abroad I enjoyed learning Spanish it would be really stupid not to have one of those and I loved hearing about people who I did a backpacking trip in the 90s and now they're like 50 something and still talk about it like I always thought those were cool and I was like it'd be so stupid not to do that but it would have it would have influenced the like I don't know. Like there were sometimes where I'd stay in a hotel for a couple of nights that was more expensive because I just wanted a better night's sleep. Or I don't know, like I would take a, a a flight or a train instead of a bus because it was faster or more comfy, even though the bus would have been more cost effective because I could. I still would have done the trip though. It just would have been
1: different. And how did you end up kind of structuring that? So it was a nine month long trip. You started in Europe and yeah. like what what locations did you hit or what was the game plan going in? So the plan was literally travel for a year or 10 months,
0: nine months, come back the following July, and then move to bus- move to New York for business school. Then I realized my grandma would kill me if I missed Christmas. So I came home for Christmas, but in the middle of the trip, traveled again, came home a little bit in the spring, and then traveled again. The locations, I think I can do it all off memory. And the only thing I bought at the beginning was a one-way ticket to Barcelona. I'd made it a round trip with a return flight three weeks out just in case like there was something wrong and I needed to get back as like an insurance policy. Canceled the I just moved the back end to like four months later to come home for Christmas. But I I, I booked a flight to Barcelona and a room in a hostel in Barcelona for like five days. And after that I figured I would figure it out when I got there. My initial plan, take the train around Spain, go to France, and then either up to Amsterdam or over to Italy, but basically work west to east probably go skiing in like Austria and then fly back or go see the Northern Lights in wintertime and fly back. I met two Americans that were from Seattle, like my first day there that were my age, super cool guys. And they were going to Prague four days later. They were like, do you want to come? And I figured, well, I don't know if I'm going to meet some people I enjoy hanging out with as much as these guys. So I guess I'm going to Prague. And that kind of (laughs) set the tone for the next four months. Every five days, I would just meet somebody. So I went Barcelona, Prague, Budapest, Krakow, Poland, flew back to Madrid for a night. And then I went down to Sevilla, Spain, Lagos, Portugal, met my one of, one of my now best friends in Lagos, and a British guy that I've hung out with every time I've gone to London. Like, it's wild how I still talk to some of these people. Went back to Sevilla, Spain, went to Paris, Geneva, Zurich, Bern, Venice, Croatia, back to Budapest. This is a ridiculous direction Where did I go after the second time in Budapest? Back to Venice. And then I went to Rome, Florence, Amalfi Coast. And then I took a a train from Naples, Italy, all the way to London, which was just horrible. London, Scotland, back to London, Norway, got deported from Norway, back to Scotland. Copenhagen, Stockholm, back to Norway, didn't get deported. Berlin, Lisbon, Sevilla for the third time, Liverpool, flew out of london so like that's a lot to pack into four months it was it was honestly i forgot it was that long until i just mapped it in my head but yeah so pretty much every part of europe that wasn't shut down from covid because this was fall 2021 so stuff was open but like there were weird
1: restrictions depending on the country so there's there's more threads that i want to go down but we can't we can't pass up that without that, you lot, dropping yeah. the deported to to norway without the explanation there of what happened one of my best friends from college was going to go, our plan was
0: go to Norway, see the Northern Lights up in Tromso, like the Arctic Circle, and then go to Stockholm, and then he was going to fly back. What we didn't realize was Norway was the one country in the EU where you had to have a European vaccine card, like a digital QR code to get in. I had one of those because I'd gotten my paper US one like converted when I was in Switzerland for some reason. And then but I'd never had any like every other country I went to just show customs, the paper one. The only time I had issues was sometimes you'd be at a bar and they would want to see like the QR code to get in for entry. But that was like a a rarity. That's the only reason I got it in Switzerland. One of my friends was meeting me in London on Halloween weekend. We're going to do Halloween in London and then fly to Oslo and then go up to Tromso. And because London isn't part of the European Union anymore, we had to go through customs and they were checking everybody's vaccine cards in Oslo. And we had no idea, but Norway only accepted EU, UK, Australia. And like, he just couldn't get in. They gave him a sheet of paper, national security threat, 24 hours to get out of the country. And we just went back to London. And then I went back to Norway after he
1: left. It was really stupid. Insane. Insane. So I haven't spent that much time really at all in Europe, but two of the... Most like transformative experiences for me were I I spent two summers in Tokyo, kind of like working in an internship. Tokyo is
0: awesome; it is a
1: phenomenal city, and there's so much to see. And I mean, Japan in general, like the the diversity in terms of like up north Hokkaido region, and then they've got Osaka. There's just like so much cool stuff in Japan to explore. But then I also did like a exchange program in Santiago, Chile, and. I really hadn't spent that much time outside of the US aside from those experiences, but they like really changed my perspective on life. And I think that maybe the most important experiences are the ones that help you gain perspective on, yeah. on your life in its entirety. To what degree did like the travel experience like change your your thinking, your your approach to life? Like, was it a pretty transformative experience for you?
0: Yeah, I think. I was I was kind of at a, a crossroads in my life going into that where I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my career. I like I'd been dating a girl for a couple of years and dated someone before that, and I was like single for an extended gap for the longest time that I had been. Like some of my friends were getting married, some of them were moving out of Atlanta. Like I just had no idea where I wanted to go with anything, and I didn't even really know like what I wanted in general. And the first thing I noticed, like, I I knew I just wanted to take a trip and just get away and just do something. People say like traveling helps you find yourself or this or that. I I push back on that hard. I think that that's a cliche thing that like people put on an Instagram caption when they go to Africa for two weeks to help build a well. I do think that traveling somewhere by yourself for a while, it strips away all aspects of your life and your identity that are just like that only exists because of how you fit into your community, like the versions of you that are just how you relate to other people. When you don't know anybody and you can be anybody or anything, like you can kind of create your own identity it puts you in a spot where the only stuff that's left is like who you actually are. So I had a much better understanding of like who I was, what I valued, what I wanted to do that I would have otherwise, because like, it just wasn't as murky. Like, yeah, I still, now that I'm, I'm in business school, like I have, like, there's a Jack Raines that is like, Jack Raines, the friend, Jack Raines, the student. But I know which parts are actually me now, and which parts are just like how I relate to everything else. So that's that was more than anything else. The other thing was I befriended a lot of people who wouldn't have like I probably wouldn't have overlapped with socially otherwise, either from different countries. We had entirely different backgrounds. There were Americans traveling who I didn't have anything in common with other than we were at the same hostel. And then you get dinner with somebody, get coffee with somebody, like go to the bars with somebody, and then you're just like best friends for life. And I still talked to probably 10 people I met in that like four-month period. So you get a better appreciation for like – you're just less ignorant. Like you, you don't think that your way is the right way about everything,
1: but you have a much better understanding of what your way is. Hmm. So you're right now a first-year student at Columbia? Second year. Second year. Okay, and what is – I guess in terms of the summary, even from a business perspective of how you think about creating content, writing the newsletter, all that stuff, like monetization, like what, what are the high level metrics or like like the sources of your income right now? And I'm just curious, like how, how you think about that?
0: Yeah, so I've been selling ads on my newsletter. I thought, I kind of extrapolated in my head that one-to-one the like payouts from ads would scale with my newsletter. So like, I don't know. I was making, like, I'm not gonna go into like all the numbers, numbers because some of them are what other people are paying me on stuff and this and that. But mm-hmm. like my the ad rate that I was getting around like ten to fifteen thousand subscribers hasn't changed that much. Now I'm closing it on fifty because there's so many newsletters now, and people are getting better at figuring out which newsletters are the best for their ads. Like, mm-hmm. like finding more and more niche newsletters related to their products. That it used to be, oh, you have 10,000 subscribers and a 50% open rate we will pay you like, I don't know, a thousand bucks. Now it's essentially the same, right? Unless you have, if you identify like a niche that just hits with your audience, cool. My newsletter is kind of just my thoughts on stuff and like all sorts of people read it, which is good for growing a newsletter. If you just want people to read it, it's bad for monetizing that newsletter because you can't identify like five or six sponsors who are going to print money from it. So that has been, I'm trying to get away from that though, exact sum, which is the, it's a much bigger, we have like 300,000 readers and I'm the like editor of that newsletter. Like I get paid for that and we send every, we send stuff out like every day and we have an ad on every send. So like that one monetizes better from the size of it and the quantity of like sending stuff. So I get paid from that, but I've done a lot of one-off consulting stuff, like social media consulting for like a lot of venture capital funds are trying to build out stronger social presences and this and that. So I'm working on a project, helping one fund build out a newsletter like about the industries they cover where they can also integrate like some of their own organic stuff, promote different events, different investments. And that could be something I do full-time after school, just depending on like how this goes. I just started a couple of weeks ago. It's been a lot of like freelance projects like that my ideal like landing spot would be having full freedom to still do my blog and exact sum, but having a full-time role somewhere where it's like some level of content strategy and content creation where I have like a lot of editorial freedom. So essentially having like work writing where I'm helping some organization build their brand content, whatever, and then having my own blog that's completely separate my thoughts. But I'd like to get away from like either not monetizing with ads on my blog or just finding a few like affiliate deals for companies I like. I ran an affiliate deal for a remote staffing company that like remote executive assistants, financial analysts, marketing help, and they paid like a pretty solid rate for sign up because people would sign these executive assistants like thirty thousand dollar a year contracts. And finding a few of those that I can just plug without having to source ads every single week would be ideal. But the revenue streams are my newsletter with ads, exact sum, which is indirectly through ads. And then like project work for other
1: people, typically like content, social media strategy, stuff like that. I was listening to, maybe it was a recent Tim Ferriss episode, and he was talking about kind of the state of podcasting. as I listened an industry. to the same one. Did yep. you? So yep. I'm, I'm curious about your take on like newsletters, which is like you got to the game pretty, pretty early, right? Yep. And your following had grown pretty quick like yeah. is there an aspect of like newsletter saturation that is uh, that exists and that like worries you at all about like future monetization of kind of the work that you're that you're working on it doesn't worry me about I'm, I'm at a point now where my
0: scale is big enough that like i i have a decent number of opportunities like i'm not i'm at a point now where i can kind of pick what i want to work on And there's also my, like, I enjoy writing. Like, it's not a, here's what happened in this industry today. Like, I just, it's a blog as much as it is a newsletter. So there's a lot of opportunities that come with just being a good writer and people seeing that having scale. And my social following is big enough now that like, if you hired me for anything and I'm helping promote it, like I am a marketing asset just by existing, which is nice, Mm -hmm. But I do think there's been some changes. Like, I think it's very difficult to build a massive newsletter with ad monetization as your primary business model because the payouts are just way lower now. And I think everybody sees that in the content game. More and more people are trying to monetize through subscription services. I think there's a very good opportunity for people who do either blogging type of writing, like long form, or people who have very high value, like, stock research analysis that like banks would pay for if you have your own Substack, beehive, whatever, and you're putting it behind a high price paywall and you have a hundred to 500 people reading that. And they're all Mm -hmm. paying, I don't know, a thousand bucks a year for really quality research. You can make a good living off of that. But I think like the ad based stuff is just tough right now. That's, that's the biggest shift. And the barrier to entry is so low. Like anybody can write a newsletter that a ton of people are launching them. Which can lead to a like people just getting newsletter fatigue. Like a lot of people are getting a lot of newsletters in their inboxes. Like, I don't know, there's like a gazillion AI newsletters right now. People who have either a very unique perspective on stuff or are the only ones covering their thing and have a low audience are gonna crush it because they can either they can either find high-paying ads, either through affiliates or flat fees, or they can build a business where they funnel it through their newsletter. Like if you're writing about marketing like a lot of CMOs are doing like marketing strategies this and that and then you're also like run a marketing agency you can filter if there's a lot of people reading your stuff like you can find a lot of clients for your business that are just reading your newsletter like you don't have to pay for marketing you are the marketing like people said Elon Musk is Tesla's marketing there's a lot of truth to that Mm -hmm. if you're just trying to monetize through ads that's that's toast like you have to find you have to find other creative ways to do it and you can't be lazy. Like there's a lot of shitty newsletters where people publish three times and they're done, or the design's ugly, this and that. Like you have to be good. But I think it's a good thing that more and more people are launching stuff. I also think people are getting inflated metrics where there's a lot of you can set up like cross recommendations on newsletters. Like if you sign up for Young Money, you'll see I also read Exact Sum and this and that. Yep. You know, it's valuable. Like the Exact Sum to Young Money ones are valuable. I can check the open rates on subscribers going both ways and it's like 50-ish percent, which matches my regular open rate. But a lot of people get inflated numbers off of that stuff. And like a hundred thousand subscribers with a 10% open rate isn't like it's not good. So something I've like started doing is focusing less on that and more on just posting a lot on Twitter and LinkedIn. Because if people are reading my
1: content and want to read more of my content, they're gonna yeah. be more engaged with it. What is your approach to writing producing content is it is it difficult for you at all to come up with ideas I mean you it seems like you're just like bursting with things to to write about has it always been that way I I think I just have a a pretty active mind like I love talking
0: all the time so writing kind of it's another venue of me getting put my thoughts out there but it forces me to think stuff through a little better Mm -hmm. Uh, but no it's but it's all different stuff like I write a blog post every week or two about human behavior around their money or just stuff that I'm thinking about that can get pretty deep. But then sometimes I'll just see something really stupid on Twitter or LinkedIn and decide I can make fun of that with something satirical. And that's just like, it's pretty easy to just, because most of my, like I write a lot of satirical stuff on LinkedIn, not that much of it is novel. It's more so I see something going on and I'm like, that's really dumb. I'm going to write something just dripping and sarcasm about that thing. So it's all influenced by something else or I'll have just a lot of it's just my opinions on like current events or stuff that's going on. But no, like I, I enjoy. The other thing is I just like writing. Like a lot of people think it's strenuous or boring. I I love sitting down
1: and just grinding on something. How good have you gotten at predicting whether an idea will do well or not? You you recently, I think you had a on the whole open AI saga had the the X post comparing the the cast to like Game of Thrones characters like when, when you come up with these ideas do you know which ones are gonna hit or does it surprise you
0: it surprises me a little bit so like that one specifically is interesting because it did really well on X and on LinkedIn and a lot of times stuff will do well on one and kind of mint on the other one mm-hmm. but it got it got like 3700 LinkedIn likes and 7200 on X and my ex-audience is twice the size of LinkedIn. So the conversion rate to followers is almost identical.
1: Mm-hmm. That
0: has never happened before. Usually they're like a Mac, even if something's good on one, it'll be 300 likes versus 6,000, right? I figured that one would work well because one, it was funny. Two, it was timely. And three, it wasn't terribly far off. Like the very first one was Amelia Clark who played Daenerys Targaryen. And then her name is mira who's the she was the cto of OpenAI. they look alike like especially if amelia clark had brown hair in the picture they would actually look a lot alike and they yeah. could joke about they both spoke multiple languages mira's from albania daenerys is from like the eastern part of whatever the game of thrones universe was across the the sea it was a hook right like it that first one was funny and then it just keeps going and it kind of works and then on linkedin I did the carousel where you can scroll through. So it's just very user-friendly way to look at all of them really quickly. So I knew the format was going to work pretty well. I didn't know if it would hit with the audience on LinkedIn, but people loved it. So I'm like, I've gotten better and better at writing good stuff that goes viral. I'm really bad at
1: guessing the degree to which it will go viral. Hmm. And how about on the different platforms like LinkedIn and X, like, the the reactions, the engagement, the audience base, like the the social expectations around them, like certain certain LinkedIn posts that you have have written about have gone pretty crazy viral as well. Yeah, like what it, what is the what is the summary in terms of the differences between those like platforms? It's, it's kind of a weird thing, just like the fact that you can post the same stuff across different platforms. And for the most part, they kind of do the same thing in terms of like you're po- posting stuff to, to a feed. And like from a text image standpoint, it's all like the exact same stuff. But stuff but it like it, it works weird I guess part of the difference is like algorithms of like what LinkedIn's pushing versus what X is is pushing but have you noticed anything about like the difference in in platforms in terms of what works and what doesn't yeah so LinkedIn people love to get angry about stuff and they, and they also take everything for face
0: value so satire like it's perfect because a decent amount of people aren't going to realize it's satire one shift I've seen is because I've posted so much satire people come to expect it a little bit but my following has gotten so big that there's always somebody who hasn't seen my stuff before, seeing it for the first time, who's like, "Who's this jackass saying that you should like steal money from your grandma or whatever?" So satire works well there because people get mad at it, comment on it, telling you you're a terrible person. And LinkedIn post the other the other thing is anytime somebody likes a LinkedIn post, it can resurface it on their followers' feed for like a while. So stuff that I posted three weeks ago, still gets some engagement through like the, it's like you throw a rock at a pond and there's ripples that go out. The LinkedIn ripples just go a lot further. Twitter is a lot funnier. Like being able to make good jokes about the current thing gets rewarded a lot. And you can write longer form stuff on Twitter now. It used to be through like a thread format, tweet after tweet after tweet. Now that you can write long form stuff, you can almost publish a blog post directly on there. And people seem to like reading stuff directly on there because you don't have to link out to another site. There's like less friction for the reader, but the content type in general, like my just kind of brain blast thoughts usually do better on X, but now that I've gotten past a certain follower size on LinkedIn, they sometimes do well on there, but you're limited in how many characters you can post on a LinkedIn post. Satire, nine times out of 10 hits way better on LinkedIn because on Twitter, it's like, it's funny, but this looks like engagement bait. On LinkedIn,
1: a lot of people don't realize it's engagement mates. They engage with it. Yeah. The um, with comedy and like just the environment that we live in now, like it, it's so easy for people to get canceled for saying things that maybe previously weren't even that controversial. Do you ever have to like double check yourself or have you ever tried to like push the button too far on something satirical or is it pretty obvious to you in terms of you using just common sense of like how far to go? I mean, I don't, I don't ever post anything that I wouldn't say to people in real life. Right. Like there's,
0: I definitely say stuff that pisses people off, but I've never said anything like racist, misogynistic, whatever. I don't know. Like I put one on LinkedIn, kind of making fun of like Elizabeth Warren is trying to crack down on like a private equity firm, trying to acquire subway while there's so many other actual antitrust issues with big tech. And then she's going to do that. I have this whole bit like sarcastically talking about how, Oh, thank you, Elizabeth Warren for doing this and that. And talking about how my local bodega boy in New York was crying because like they're gonna put their sandwich shop out of business, like nobody else can make sandwiches now. But I like I'm alluding to the fact that like the hypothetical bodega boy is Hispanic and his name was I think I said Pablo and he said like no I must or no I must sandwiches because of like big sandwich or whatever. Somebody like comment is like this is racist. Like no, it's not. I mean, my bodega boy's name is actually Luis and not Pablo. I changed his name. I'm not gonna dox my guy, but. Yeah. He speaks Spanish. Like in a hypothetical scenario, this would be something that he would get upset about and say just like that in Spanish. Like I think people go out of their way to assume that something is bad or whatever. Like I don't know. Like if you want to, if you want to perceive something as bad, you can find a way to do that. But like I've never posted anything that I go, I run through the test. Like, would a neutral third party observer, if they realize this was satire, find it funny or find it? like wrong and i wouldn't post anything that a random person
1: seeing wouldn't see the humor in makes sense makes sense from a a content generation pr- perspective you mentioned that like you you like to to speak and you've been on a number of podcasts have you yeah. thought about doing your own podcasting stuff the only thing i've thought about is adding an
0: audio component to like reading my blogs or newsletters and in- incorporating that i don't have time to run like another i've got so much stuff going on right now i couldn't like Plan out. It would be a really shitty podcast if I was out there trying to do like a weekly show or whatever, or if I'm trying to interview people, I don't have enough time to research people to the level that I would like a lot of people doing interview form podcasts like you did a lot more research on me than I would have been able to do on you because I wouldn't have had time to devote to that. So the only thing that would have an ROI that makes sense is reading my stuff, putting it out. That might be something that I start doing next year. And once I'm out of school in May, I'll have more time to really map out how I want to navigate some of that, but
1: not yet. Cool. What What are your current plans? So I know even in scheduling, you made mention of like a potential book coming out. What Are you able to, to speak about that at this point? Yeah, it's like, I don't have a book deal signed yet, but I do have like a couple of editors at different publishing
0: houses who've reached out and like inquiring if I've like thought about writing a book. And then it went from that to like, you really should write a book to like, we would love you to write a book. So I talked to a couple of my friends who have like signed book deals and this and that. And like, there's, if you have a big following and it's a good book idea, there is a decent amount of money in book advances. And on the flip side, if you self-publish there's, if the book does well, you can make a lot of money in the royalties off of like self-publishing as you keep most of the profits. I honestly didn't even think about like, I didn't think people made much money off of books, but you can. But I wasn't going to write a book just to make money. It wasn't until I had an idea for one to write about. And like, I've had a lot of blog posts that have done well, that's like that whole kind of like, how do we prioritize our time and money type of stuff? And it got to yep. the point that I, like, you can only go so far as a writer. If you're only publishing blogs and articles, you kind of need to write a book at some point to solidify yourself as a writer. So long story short, I've been working on a proposal for a book deal that I'm going to, I was going to try to send out by end of year to some editors probably gonna push it. Not gonna say for sure, but like I need the proposal to be perfect to the point that like I'm happy with them reviewing this and think people will love the idea and the way that I've outlined it. So there's no like material developments on that yet. But yeah, I'm in the process of like hopefully writing a book soon.
1: And and what's the the topic is gonna be on travel.
0: Is that right? No, I so that was and I've I've tweeted about how I was thinking about writing a travel book, which is like it's a good question. I wanted to do that and I still want to do that, but I think travel is one aspect of like, that's a thing that I prioritize in my life. I think there's a lot broader, like people really resonate with the idea of kind of like taking control of your time and money to like build the life that you want. And I think we do a really bad job of it. So I'm leaning more into that. And like, I've got a lot of travel anecdotes that go into that. I would like to write a book about travel specifically at some point. I honestly just wouldn't want that to be like, I don't want to just write one book. I'd like to write multiple books and I don't want to like almost over niche myself as a travel book guy by that being the first book, if that makes sense. So it's yeah. like, frankly, I think a travel book would do better if I wrote a book that wasn't about travel first. So i would rearranged that. So yes, that is still something I'd like to do, but that one's
1: probably a couple of years down the road very cool. Well, we're we're coming up on time here and I did mention kind of at the beginning that I just let the conversation go where it may. So there were a handful of of topics or subjects that would have been fun to to talk about, but maybe once you get that book out if you're up for doing another pod on the book and covering some other other subjects, it would be great to have you on again. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jack. Yeah, man. Thanks, Tyler. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange Podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where... I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.